Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh talks to us about what true faith looks like. In this sermon, the argument is made that we show and demonstrate our faith by our works. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Trust Him. Romans chapter 4, we finish up this passage uh, this week uh, with verses 23 to 25. Verses 23 to 25 is what we'll be studying. We'll we'll back up a little bit there um, to verse 22 with this uh, statement. That's a quote from the Old Testament that has been repeated numerous times um, in chapter 4 because it's been uh, the primary point being made through all of this. So Romans 4. Speaking of Abraham, back in verse 22, and then we'll read through. Verse 22, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. Please bow with me and let's pray. Oh, Father, we are completely helpless. And if you do not give the grace that we need, then Lord, we'll sit here, words will be spoken, but nothing will happen. We do not have the power to bring about eternal things, to bring about spiritual fruit. And so, God, we are completely dependent on you and we need to acknowledge that. And so, God, we cry out to you and ask, come, O Lord, and show mercy. Come, O Lord, and shed light. Do the work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit and bring us to understand. Bring us to see with eyes of faith, with eyes that get it and then are changed by what we see. It's a mystery We keep studying it, but it still confounds us, oh God, how it is you bring about these things in our lives, how it is that you're at work and yet we're making decisions, but in the end, it's all your purposes. It's confusing, but God, at the end of the day, we know you get all the glory. You're the one accomplishing your purposes. And so what we beg here is, oh God, we who have turned to Christ, sons and daughters, we come and we beg, oh Lord, Give us understanding, show us your truths, show us yourself, change us. And God, I pray for any in the room who are on the other side of this division, who are on the outside of your family because they have not turned to Christ for whatever reason in their minds, hearts, oh God, still refusing to embrace you. I ask, oh God, bring them today to have eyes to see and for the first time to bring about that new birth, O oh Lord. Please accomplish it through your word. You don't need us, but we ask that you use us. Please bless this time for the glory of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Carlos Lopez was an unusually bright young man uh, looking to make a name for himself. 
Growing up in Colombia, South America, the most natural avenue for that was for him to enter the workforce in cocaine plantations. Try to make some money, climb a ladder, get desires to become famous. Carlos entered the workforce at 18. Only one year later, his giftedness was noticed and he was already put in charge of a few dozen men underneath him leading a team. Over the next few years, that would increase and there were times that he would be leading a couple hundred workers underneath them. He was making a name for himself. Uh, Carlos loved to read. And so on the many trips that he would have to take to uh, another plantation as they would go work those fields and he would bring men with them, he had his assistants bring along books. And in the evenings after the long days working in the plantations, he would then read to keep educating himself. And on one of these trips, to his disappointment, his assistants forgot to bring his books. Not to worry, they said, we'll, we'll go into the village and we'll find something for you. They came back with one of those little Gideon's New Testaments that they place all over the world. Carlos had never read the Bible before. Having no other options that evening, he began to read. What he read so gripped him. He decided, I, my whole team needs to hear this stuff. So in the coming days, after the long hours in the field, they would gather around a bonfire where Carlos would read the New Testament. The iron, don't miss the irony of this. Cocaine workers gathering about a around a bonfire, hearing the New Testament read to them over the course of the days as they read through the New Testament, Carlos began to see the significance of this man named Jesus, the realities of the truths of the gospel, he saw that his sins separated him from God. He saw that there was a punishment he deserved, but he saw that Jesus, the God-man, had made a remedy for his sin if he would turn and believe. When you come to the end of one of those um, Gideon's New Testaments there, if you ever pick one up and take a look at it, at the end, on the back pages, there's a brief little explanation of the gospel and then a call for the reader to place their faith in Christ, even a little place to sign your name there if you do turn to him. Carlos did, as well as several dozen of the team that he was reading to. It was nearly immediately that Carlos came to the conclusion that his line of work was dishonoring God. He became convicted, he came to the team and told them he was gonna quit and told them why. He speaks to a team of more than a hundred and tells them, I've, I've, I've got to leave. This is sin against the Lord. And actually around 40 others left the work with him. Uh, amazingly enough, they traveled into one of the nearest cities, walked into town, asked some of the residents there, are there any Christians around? Now, Colombia's a bit different than other parts of South America. Colombia has a great deal of darkness. They said, I don't know what you're talking about, Christians? And he goes, you know, the guys in the churches. Oh, okay, well, you know, take this street, this street over there. Carlos and about 40 former cocaine workers walk into a church. Can you imagine this one Sunday? Not only are there 40 new visitors, but there are recent converts and believers who have turned to Christ and now want to join the church. I'll take that next Sunday. 
Fast forward several years, Carlos to today, Carlos is now a pastor shepherding a congregation of several thousand. Of the group who left the cocaine field, 19 of them are now pastoring churches. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It seems so simple. Believe. Faith. Sometimes when we're sharing the gospel and we come to the part of a call, do you ever, I do sometimes, get to that part where I'm about to say, here's how you get it. And a little nagging voice in the back of my head goes, but it sounds too easy. It sounds too simple. Believe, really? This is how we receive eternal life, believe? This is what the scripture tells us. For you who are Christians in this room, you have embraced Christ and there's evidence in your life of it. This is where it began. Now, what we see scripture show is God uses that little first seed of faith to then grow and it develops into other things. It must. All true faith will. The faith that saves is a faith that stays. It's a faith that produces work. It's a faith that is alive. We finish up this chapter that we've been seeing arguing to prove and to explain the truth that we receive, what has been declared to us, this right standing with God, forgiveness of sins, Eternal life, that's summed up in this biblical word, justification. We receive this by responding in faith. It's based on the work of Christ, but it is made ours by faith. And these last three verses of chapter four bring a, bring a conclusion to this part of the argument that's been made and then makes a good transition to what will be the next part. Lord willing, we start chapter five uh, next Sunday where we'll see two more arguments made and we see this transition that's made there based on the finished work of Christ. So as we look through these three verses here, um, let let me bring out three points to you if you're taking notes. Here's number one, the finished work of Christ. I'm gonna go a little bit out of order here, but you'll see why. If you look at our text again, I I love the way that it turns the attention to us. I love the way that as you're reading through chapter four here, there's this way that um, we're shown that what was written was not simply for people of the past, but it is turned to you and I. It's like scripture points a finger at us and says, this is how you will be justified if you believe. Let's go slightly out of order. Look at verse 25. Speaking of Jesus, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. See, chapter three came through and and made this argument, this, this declaration of how it is that Jesus accomplished what was necessary to deal with sin. The biblical word for that is to atone for sin, how it is that Jesus did that. And then chapter four came in to argue, here's how you receive it. And now as we come to the end of this argument, there's one more declaration to remind us of what's been said again of the finished work of Christ, what Jesus accomplished on the cross Well, it was just that. It was accomplishing 
something. And, and here's why we need to make a point about that. Jesus' death and resurrection is not simply a declaration of God's love for you. See, those who deny many of the ego-crushing truths of the gospel, you know, the ones that people don't like, that part of the message of the gospel is that you and I are unclean because of our sin. You really do deserve hell. That's offensive. And when we first hear it, it's what the Bible declares. But sometimes folks can try to make the gospel a little more palatable, not quite so offensive. And so what some have done with Jesus's death and res resurrection is to say some things like this. Jesus's death is how God just wanted to say, here's how much I love you. Now, will you please love me too? But that's not what the gospel declares. The gospel declares that what Jesus did is accomplish what was necessary for you and I to be saved. The God man stepped into history and worked deeds. Now, is it an expression of God's love? Yes, but it is not merely that. It came out of God's love and was an expression of his love, but it is so much more than just an I love you from God. Jesus in his death and resurrection achieved righteousness. He absorbed the wrath of God. He paid a debt you could not pay. He purchased forgiveness, ransomed your soul, atoned for sin, propitiated the Father's wrath, defeated death, cleansed the sin of his people, redeemed his people from slavery, became a curse for us. He accomplished on behalf of those who respond in faith. There was work that he did on the cross. This is the basis of your salvation, Christian. The basis of it is nothing inside of ourselves, but completely outside which we receive by faith. Romans 4 even made the argument, this is why God made it by faith, because it is entirely about receiving what God has done on our behalf and not what I conjure or achieve from my own work. Well, secondly then, look at this call here to trust. If you look at verse 24 again, it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You know, there are enormous misunderstandings of what faith, belief actually is. Some people have the idea that faith is like jumping off a building, but believing God will catch you. The Bible shows that's not faith, that's testing the Lord and it's evil. Some people believe that faith is like uh, taking a leap into the dark. When the Bible explains it differently, it explains it in terms of God revealing light and faith is to step into the light by trusting him. Faith is Abraham being told by God that there's a land of promise that I'm going to give you. And Abraham believes and in trust then starts walking that the faith, the trust in God then produces some things. True faith can't be held while sitting in the same place when faith demands an action. Faith in God is believing that God is trustworthy. It is to believe that he's good, that he's in control. 
It is belief that his character is the kind I can depend on. And so I I turn a a friendly heart towards him instead of resistance and obstinance. It is embracing. Last week we used that illustration of uh, as a kid getting stuck in a tree and your dad tells you to jump and he'll catch you. The dilemma of faith in that moment is the dilemma of, is my dad able to do what he says that he can do? You can believe in your dad's existence, but not like him, and so you refuse to trust him. You can believe in your dad's existence, but maybe your dad was a shady character, all the time making promises that he didn't keep and thinking he could do things he couldn't do, and so you could not trust him. But it would also be possible for your dad to be a great guy, always keep his word, but because of some pride, some just obstinate refusal in your heart could have led you to hold back trust even though you should. Well, friends, any mistrust in God is of that last kind because the truth of the matter is that God is trustworthy. God always follows through on his word. Friends, you do realize God has been faithful in billions of individual occasions throughout history. Billions of people lived in history and there is never one single time that God has ever failed to come through on a promise. Now, it's often the case that we would kind of like God to work things more pleasurably for us, but he has never violated a single thing that he has said he will do. Billions of opportunities for failure has never failed one time. His character is trustworthy. Faith is to see that, see his trustworthiness, refuse to keep being obstinate towards him and to turn the friendly heart of trust to him. Friends, to disbelieve God, it is to refuse. There's there's an active kind of obstinance in failure to place our faith in him. You see, here's why disbelieving, it's not innocence. It's actually resistance to God. It's, It's an affront to God. It's because in creation, innately, in his word, everywhere that we turn, God is revealing himself. He has revealed himself. He's continuing to reveal himself. You can't turn a single direction without seeing some evidence of his handiwork, his glory, without constantly seeing the Bible authenticated in front of you. You can't turn on the news and not see exactly what the Bible says human nature is like being played out. You can't turn on the radio. You can't have a conversation with friends. You can't hear a baby giggle without comprehending life is playing out exactly how the Bible says that it will. He's revealing himself all around you. Every witness cries out that he's there and he's good. The great contradiction of secularism, of naturalism, who pretend to be completely objective is that every single day they trust faulty sources. They trust finite creatures They'll say things out their lips of things like, oh, the evidence is just too strong for faith. And all the while their faith is in professors. All the while their faith is in sources with an agenda. 
little illustration. The political season is upon us again. You as excited as me? Sarcasm. <laughs> There's a current controversy in our culture. Which news source do you get your information from? Depending on your political leaning, there's a news source you trust and a news source you don't. Might start with an F, might start with a C. I'll let you figure those out yourself. But someone on the other side from that news source that you don't trust, you, someone from that could say, hey, you know, we're just giving the news here. We're just being objective, but you know it's not true. You know that the source is coming from an agenda, that there, there are stories being overlooked, that there, that there are facts being covered up, this kind of thing. This is constantly, we know it is the case. And part of the point here is you choose who you trust. You choose who you trust. Faith in God is to admit the hard truth that the voices of humans are finite, flawed, constantly in error, conclusions that one generation come to are reversed in the next, scientific conclusions have been overturned in history more times than you have hairs on your head. It is to recognize that to trust man over God is absurd when you are walking around in the world that he created. Faith is to trust God. It's to take him at his word. And while we're on this, this note here, at, at some point, there are a couple of things before we finish chapter four, I wanted to make sure that we got to by way of application. And I think this is as helpful of a, as a place of any. Let me say a quick word about doubt. You know, we're saved by faith. And so sometimes as Christians, we can completely freak out when there's a moment or a season of some doubt, and it can be in all kinds of areas that are there. But sometimes Christians, they get this kind of terror of like, this means I'm not really a Christian, or like the, the devil's just taken over my mind or, or some kind of scary thought. Do you realize that even John the Baptist experienced doubt? You need to know as a, as a Christian, that's not a sign that you're out of the faith. Now, now hear me very carefully as well. Is it dangerous? Yes. Which means that when thoughts of doubt creep in, there needs to be some jumping on it, like get active and not passive. Doubt comes from some passive uh, listening to voices rather than addressing it. But one of the things that one of the things that is unhelpful is that sometimes because as Christians, we understand salvation comes by faith and it, because doubt has such a, a dark and scary glare about it that Christians will stay silent whenever they're going through seasons of it or maybe some, some little thought is just kind of nagging them in the back of their mind, but they are, they're afraid if I admit this to somebody, man, they're really gonna think I'm awful. And so sometimes Christians will go through a season of misery for months when it might've been the case that a single conversation, uh, a single another friend in Christ might've given that answer be like, oh yeah, light bulb comes on, doubt is dissolved that is there. Friends, we need to understand that it's part of living in a cursed world with an enemy who hates you and is trying to discourage you that little lobbed in arrows of doubt will occasionally cross your mind. It's what we do with them that matters. Sometimes a doubting thought lasts 10 seconds. 
You cock your head to the side, you think for a second, you dress it, oh, okay, done. Other times, it can last. You know, Ephesians 6 tells us that Satan shoots, this is metaphorical, Satan shoots fiery arrows at the Christian and the shield of faith is how we defend against it. That leads me to believe that at least part of what's being talked about there are thoughts of doubt. So scripture shows demonic spirits are able to suggest thoughts to our heart. So there are times when a thought didn't necessarily originate from within you. And I know it's mysterious how it all works with spiritual influences and such. But he lobs in these thoughts and we're called to address and deal with them rightly. Not just passively letting the thoughts control us, but instead we speak, we address, we get active. But there are times where those kinds of thoughts can, can nag us. But I, I want to encourage you, Christian, don't freak out. And God actually means some of those things to be a catalyst to deepening and strengthening your faith. All things work together for good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. God is all the time taking difficulties of your life that Satan's trying to use to discourage you and he instead uses it to encourage and strengthen you. It goes the same with these kinds of thoughts. Listen, let me encourage you. You get one of those nagging thoughts, chase it. Seek the truths. Go investigate. Don't be afraid of think, man, if I keep going down this direction, I might not end up a Christian. No, I'm going to tell you, chase out the truth. Your faith is going to get stronger because as you put biblical worldview next to the secular worldview, you're going to start to see its holes, its contradictions, all the places it is making assumptions based on belief in God. And they don't even realize it. the Bible will hold up to your questions you're going to see it again and again and again as you investigate and try to get those answers. The Bible just keeps supplying with deeper, deeper things. And you're going, man, it's more amazing than I ever thought. Those seasons can actually turn into seasons that grow and strengthen you. One of the most fruitful seasons of my life was when a nagging little thought came into, head, came into my head of, how do I know that naturalism isn't true? What if it is? So you go seek the answers. And that season ended up leading to then laughing at the thoughts that once nagged me because when you go to seek the answers, you start to see the Bible showing its weight and its strength and the foundations and then go read the best of what the secular world has to offer. I mean, by all means, keep it balanced as you're reading scripture, go read the best argument that the world has to offer and then you cock your head and go, huh, I see a hole here and a contradiction there and assumptions made there. The point is, the Bible will hold up. Don't let these kinds of doubts and such debilitate you. And also remember this, there are times that we choose to believe truths, not because it all makes sense to us yet, and it's not all clear yet, but we trust Him. We trust him. So sometimes as we're reading the Bible, there's a part that I'm like, I don't see how it fits with everything yet, but I trust him. And it's a regular thing that on down the road as a Christian, light bulbs come on all the time. And then the day will come, you look back, and you're like, I don't know how I didn't see it then. This is a regular thing that God does. 
If you're not a Christian, then I can only assume that there are some doubts that you have about one or several truths of the gospel that's causing your hangup of refusing to embrace Christ. And so what, what I appeal to you consider is that all the time, every day, you're trusting things that you don't fully understand. It's a basic part of life to trust. Oftentimes when youth go off to college, and you young people, depending on where you go to college, the day may come that you have a professor stand up in front of a class and say something like this, push his glasses up his nose with the snooty voice, say something like, science is proven, that God is not real, the Bible's not true. And sometimes that student then goes, oh, well, faith is over. Take a step back for a second. Think about what you just did there. Do you know all the mysteries of the cosmos? Does your professor understand all the mysteries of the cosmos? No, but you have now taken trust away from God and placed it in a finite creature who does not comprehend the mysteries of the universe, but you are trusting him as the source of your information. Stephen Hawking, as brilliant as he was, did not comprehend one billionth of the truths and mysteries of the cosmos. And yet so many would look to an individual as the source of their truth and all the while be claiming objective, we're being objective, we're just looking at the evidence. No, you're choosing who you trust. Part of faith in Christ is comprehending the trustworthiness of God, seeing the light he's revealed and choosing to trust him, looking to him. We receive this forgiveness of sins by embracing Christ by faith, trusting in the one who gave his son, he who raised up our Lord Jesus. Well, here's the last thing I wanna look at as we finish up chapter four together. We call this point fool's gold faith, and this is kind of the conclusion to this section here. One of the points the scripture repeatedly makes as it uses Abraham as an example, is how his faith produced action. It's how his trust in God led him to go and put legs to his faith. We've used that phrase several times as we've studied through here. In chapter four, we see this as there's been the mention of Abraham's faith, which we saw revealed in Genesis chapter 15, and then the actions that he took in the days to follow where his faith was being lived out. His faith produced these kinds of actions. And so let me take you to another place where that is really on display. Let's, let's leave Romans for a moment and turn back with me to the book of James. James chapter two, we're gonna read a section and let me be honest with you, some of what we're gonna read is difficult and confusing. It'd be convenient not to go here, but if we don't study hard things here, where will you? James chapter two, look at verse 14 and let's read through verse 20 to start. And let's see some of the points that are made here. James 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. 
But someone may, may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, pause there for a second. There are a couple reasons why what is being said here is so crucial to us. One of them is we're going we're gonna to see some things about what true faith looks like, what true faith is, so that we comprehend it. But there's also a part that connects us with Romans 3 here that we need to make sure that we understand. Because at some point, you're going to be reading the Bible on your own. You're going to encounter something difficult. Go, wait a second. How does this work? Well, in 14 to 20 there, he says, a man has a faith. Now, hear the language. He has a faith. But it's the faith that doesn't do anything, doesn't produce anything. Nothing ever comes out of it. Listen to the question that is asked in the text. Can that faith save him? Now, this passage is going to say something here in a little bit that will seem difficult and may even seem like a contradiction to what we've been studying in Romans 3. And some use it. Um, to teach salvation by works or salvation plus works. But let me ask you this question. If salvation came by works or faith plus works, could the question in verse 18 be asked in the way that it is? Can that faith save him? No. Um, remember that as we've studied through this passage, we have seen an absolute mountain of verses from the Bible like fill a page with all the references from the Bible that just say again and again and again and from many different angles, we are justified by faith. We are saved by faith. Think of Jesus even saying things so simply that little children can explain it. If you believe on me, you will have eternal life. It's just been stated so clearly. And there's one verse in the whole Bible that can seem to contradict. It doesn't, but it can seem it. But think about it. What is the point of what James is saying in this passage? The theme is he is explaining what kind of faith saves. Well, here's, here's another way of saying it. Can an imposter faith save you? No. Well, then what kind of faith does save you? The true kind. Well, what does the true kind look like? It's alive. How do I know if it's alive? It does something. There are works that come out of it. Think of Jesus' metaphor, which is the working metaphor to always understand these things. The root is what causes the fruit. What's in the ground level at the bottom, this is what brings to bear the works out of it. So verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. So the context of the passage is what kind of faith saves? And you need to show your faith by your works. Well, thus far, all of that is sounding exactly like what we would expect from Romans 3 and what we see Jesus say all the time. But let me show you the hard part of the passage. Start in verse 21. Let's read through 24 here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. 
And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Does that bother you? It's a little bit of like, wait a second, this sounds exactly the opposite from all the mountain of verses that we've been reading. The whole argument of Romans 4, Romans 3 saying things like, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how do these two fit together? Jesus said scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot contradict itself. So how are we to understand and make sense of it? Well, let me tell you three things about it. Here's the first. Paul, who wrote Romans and James, they are not turned face to face fighting each other. They're not saying different things. They're fighting, but they're back to back fighting different enemies. There are two different errors being fought with here. In Romans, Paul is mainly fighting the error of those who believe that you're saved by self-righteousness. Saved by you be good, you get to go to heaven. We've mentioned there are denominations, churches, even under the name of Christianity who claim that kind of thing. We've mentioned them, no need to go through it all again. Paul is addressing that error. James is back to back with Paul and he's fighting a different enemy. It's an ugly one. Might I say that it's often a Baptist one? We're not the only ones, but occasionally it's good to pick on ourselves. He's fighting an enemy that believes salvation by faith, but that enemy that kind of goes, who cares how I live? Who cares what I do? Live like hell, party my way all the way to hell, but hey, I'm saved because when I was six at VBS, I prayed the prayer. That kind of just disregarding all of the Bible, but only claiming, I believe. And because I say I believe, that makes me right. James is fighting the error of the man who claims he believes, yet it's clear he's not born again. There is no life of God inside of him producing obedience. There is Corinthian-like rebellion, breaking the law of God, yet all the while claiming, but I have faith, but I have faith. So consider what he says here. And bear in mind the context of the passage. Obedience and works show your faith. That's what verse 18 says. Well, here's the second thing to bear in mind to try to help us understand this. Do you remember in chapter four that we said it's a big deal when Abraham was justified? When was he saved? Before or after certain events? Well, James 2, 21 there, if you look at it, says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac. Let me ask you this. In what chapter of the Bible, what chapter of Genesis did Abraham offer Isaac? The answer is chapter 22. When was Abraham justified before God in the sense we're told that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? What chapter is it? Remember, chapter 15. Math helps Christianity too. 15 comes before 22, okay? So part of the point that's being made here is Abraham was made right with God by faith long before, it wasn't just days, it was decades before chapter 22. So understanding that is part of what helps us in understanding the connection that is here. Abraham was forgiven of his sins, made right with God in chapter 15. So what happened in chapter 22? 
What happened in chapter 22 is Abraham showed his faith. He revealed his faith. He demonstrated his faith. I will show you my faith. How? By my works. It doesn't say that works is what saves, but your works show your faith. And then here's the last thing, the last part of this. That still leaves us with this question though, of what is meant when it says that Abraham was justified by works. Well, just like in English, that we have some words that depending on context means different things. Same kind of root, but depending on the context and how it's used, it means different things. I mean, for crying out loud, it's, it's interesting that we even use the word justification in English in about three different ways, and the Bible uses it in about three different ways. There are other words in the Bible that do the same thing. Uh, the Greek word zealos, what English word do you think we get from that? Zealous. But that same word, zealous in a good way, in other passages based on context means jealousy of a sinful kind. Same word, different meanings that are there. If you remember that whenever we were studying through the word justification, we saw three different ways that the Bible uses it. We saw things like you can justify yourself to yourself, meaning what? You make yourself feel righteous. Not actually, but you can make yourself feel it. You tell yourself, I'm right with God because why? I justify my sin. I come up with an excuse for why it's okay for me. We saw Jesus say that the Pharisees justified themselves to others. In other words, what they did is, is they acted in such a way, they spoke in such a way, they put on the religious mask in such a way that they made other people think of them as righteous. Now, were they righteous before God? No, but they made people think that. And then, of course, justification in terms of being right with God. And so I say all that to make this point. When James says that Abraham was justified by works, he is not saying that the moment that Abraham became right with God and received eternal life was the moment he offered up Isaac in Genesis 22. Because back in chapter 15 is when that happened. So what happened here in Genesis 22? How was he justified? In what sense was he? Abraham was justified in the sense of publicly showing his faith, proving his faith that he was right with God. And by the way, there's a, there's a verse from Genesis 22 that helps us understand that. Genesis 22:12. Abraham is about to go through on this act that is testing his faith. You know what it was? God was never going to have him sacrifice his son. The angel shows up and stops him and says this. Now I know that you fear God. You revealed it. So we might say this. Abraham was justified before God in Genesis 15. And Abraham was justified before men and angels in Genesis 22, in the sense of vindicating, authenticating his faith. Now, I'll be the first to say this, that that still leaves with a little bit of, but why was it worded in that way? Sometimes the only thing we can say is God has chosen to make some passages of the Bible hard, so you got to beat your head against the text. And in doing so, we see more. It's good for us that some passages of the Bible are hard. And let me also say this, friends. We need James 2. James 2 is one of the most important passages of the Bible. 
And if you haven't seen so yet, why? You will. Some of you have seen what happens when cheap grace is preached. Where the old, just pray the sinner's prayer and you'll be fine. Don't ever let anybody question anything that you do. You've seen what it produces. People who claim salvation, but are not converted, not born again. They have an imposter kind of faith instead of the real thing. And yet they've convinced themselves that they're good. Listen to me very carefully. Those are some of the most dangerous folks who will ever darken the doors of a church or your own home. You want to know how church leaders can molest children? You want to know how Judas's can carry on in the world and go to sleep at night? It's this. In a church culture where this kind of stuff is believed, I have seen produce some of the worst kinds of disgustingness, and I'll bet many of you have too. I've seen men commit statutory rape and then claim that they were a Christian because they were saved years back when I prayed the prayer. And then when you come to them and call them to repentance and tell them, look, man, you're facing hell if you don't repent of this, they look confused. What are you talking about? When I was six, my preacher said, don't ever let anybody question whether or not you're saved. Somebody explained the gospel wrongly to them. I knew a woman whose son robbed a liquor store, lived a life of drugs, addiction, sexual sin, constant rebellion. But after the liquor store instance, she made sure to defend him and say, oh, but he's saved. So in the end, he's okay. Because back at VBS as a kid, he prayed the sinner's prayer. Easy believism, cheap grace cultures produce rebels against God who convince themselves that they are okay and are unwilling to hear a call to repentance. So they party their way to hell, take others with them, and all the while claim faith in Christ. James 2 is a place in the Bible crying out, that's not true faith. And even though we may be in a place where that is not commonly kind of thought, Listen very carefully. It's possible for our hearts, which are deceptive, to lead us down a road where we maybe come to believe some of those kinds of things. Believe, well, I know I'm okay, so who cares whether or not I obey in this right here? That's not genuine faith. We might call it fool's gold. Kind of looks like the real thing from a distance, but in the end, it's not real. So while James 2 is confusing, listen very carefully, friends. We need James 2. While we need to hear Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, we also need some of those passages where Jesus says things like, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. What does real faith look like? Real faith, trust. Real faith is going to show itself alive by its deeds. The faith that saves is a living faith. The faith that saves brings about a fruit of that faith. This is a big deal that God shows us. We are to authenticate our faith, but we must also never confuse the root from the fruit. What is the cause of salvation? And what is then the authentication of salvation? So what about you? Where are you? Are you Christian? 
Have you been thinking of yourself saved, but you see that mine doesn't look like that? Or have you been holding on to certain hangups, certain ways that you've been obstinate towards God to refuse to trust him? You know, when we take the Lord's Supper together, one of the things that we are doing is declaring our faith in Christ. We're declaring our belief in the gospel. We're declaring the historical events of Jesus' broken body, shed blood, and that act of eating, that act of receiving. There are pictures in this. The act of partaking is an act of declaring Jesus has accomplished redemption and I trust him. That's why scripture gives the warnings that it does. That before we partake together, that there's some seriousness that is involved in that. So we're gonna pause here in just a second and take the Lord's Supper together. Before we do, I always give at least a few warnings that scripture gives. The most basic one that the Bible gives is this, that the Lord's Supper is to be partaken by those who trust in Christ. So if you haven't, if there's still been a, holding back and refusal to trust him. We don't say this to try to be mean or try to make our church an exclusive club. These are the warnings that God gives. He says, don't partake because you are trampling the blood of Christ. It's like making a mockery of what he did if you don't trust it, but then participate in ordinances that he's given. But God also speaks a word to Christians as well. He speaks the word to Christians <laughs> that we are to examine ourselves, that we are to consider and confess sin before we do. So here in just a moment, we're going to partake together. We invite you to join us, even if you're not a member of the church. If you've trusted Christ and we believe followed up with biblical baptism, then partake with us. Let me give us just a brief moment of silence for you to pray on your own, and then I'll close us in a word of prayer and call up some help. Oh, Lord, our God, we confess that we are a sinful people and that if it were not for the work of Christ, we would have no hope. And all of our hope is in you because of him. Please, oh, Lord, our God, bless us as we remember, as we celebrate. Lord, I pray that you will be worshiped. Father, we ask these things through the name of Christ. Thanks for listening. And we hope you were deeply impacted by this week's message titled, Trust Him. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.